You're listening to Stir Crazy with Steve Jenkins. Conversations with creatives during the quarantine. Hey folks, welcome to Stir Crazy with Steve Jenkins. I'm Steve Jenkins and thanks for listening. Today my guest is Adrian Harpum. Adrian is an excellent drummer based in New York City and Philadelphia. He's played with folks like Leo Nascentelli of The Meters, Bernie Orell, Chromio, Amel LaRue, Dr. John, Tom Scott, Oz Noy, The Screaming Headless Torsos, and so many more. Besides drumming, Adrian has also moved into the realm of music production, and he's produced over 30 recordings. Not only that, he has an imprint within the Ropadope label called Modern Icon Recordings. I first met Adrian back in 2006 on a few gigs that we both did together with Dave Fuzinski. It's been a while since he and I had chatted, so it was really great to catch up with him. We had a great conversation, and here's how that went. How's it been going, dude? What's been happening? Oh, man, I've just been just uh, just been pushing through, you know, just been uh, plowing through like a warrior in a, in a certain sense through this whole time. Um, just trying to keep my thoughts constructive, keep my actions constructive and keep things moving forward because obviously this stuff will end. I mean, we all have, well, for, for a long time, we've all had really cynical prognosis. You know, this could be another two years, another year and a half. This could be, this is the new normal, you know, all that sort of stuff. Sure. I didn't really believe that. I knew that at some point, normalcy would just come right back up on us again if we don't have anything to show for it that would be as bad as the um what's happening you know in a certain sense i don't know if if that seems to make sense to you but yeah no it it totally does i mean i think the the hardest thing about all this for most people who who do what we do or people that basically work in any kind of situation where at some point part of what you do involves being around people in very close proximity or small spaces. So, you know, it could be musicians, it could be like, um, people that work that like comedians, you know, they're like, there's so many things that exist in small rooms. And even, even if there are things that eventually go on to, to flourish in bigger rooms, like it all starts there. And even a lot of the stuff, that kind of keeps the wheels turning in our business, you know, like just going out to hang somewhere. Um, you know, it's like the, there's a whole, I think we've been hit pretty hard with all this. I mean, lots of people have, but I think given the way our community tends to work and, and communicate, um, it, it's really, it's really been tough because I think what I've noticed is you've got people, their problem solving revolves around trying to put a lid on something or like be able to define what it is. And, um, especially when it's not in anyone's control past a certain point. So it's, I, I agree with you, man. I mean, I think I'm not, I don't think everybody needs to have like six pack abs at the end of this, but yeah. <laughs> some people will. Yeah, sure. some people will. And I think that's probably smart to, mm-hmm. to be more health minded, but, but I think, in terms of productivity, I mean, I think no matter what happens, like stuff's always going to morph and change. And I think survival is, I think survival in this has been kind of what you were saying, like just trying to keep a positive mental attitude 
Um, it's really hard though, right? Like the, yeah. there's a lot of noise and, and, um, just, just as far as like, depending on where you are too, are you, I was, so here's what I was going to ask, like leading yeah. into that topic. Did you yeah. spend the bulk of your time in, in the city, like in New York or were you back in, cause I know you've been doing some stuff in Philly too. Like were you sort of back and forth? Did you hunker down somewhere? Well, um, for the last four years, my wife and I have had an apartment in, uh, in Philly. Okay. I, my Midtown apartment, which, you know, um, my whole life, my whole musical life has, has been New York and uh, one year in LA at one point, a long time ago. And uh, so I was just going back to New York to work. And then the days I didn't need to be working, I would be in Philly. But um, as COVID hit, I had a few more like sessions because I've been become really active as a producer. And so I had a few more sessions and then they all started to get canceled. And I just took a three 30 in the morning and tracked to Philly and have barely entered New York since then. But I have reentered New York, but it's, I've been living in Philly and gone to New York for like a day, two days, right? You know, little, little short blips just to make sure the apartment didn't burn down. Um, <laughs> that kind of stuff. So it, it's been the long answer. <laughs> the long and the short of it is, uh, yes, it's, I've been mostly in Philly because it's been easier to be here. And, uh, New York's crazier. And of course it was the epicenter. Um, yeah. But starting in June, we bought a place, uh, and then, and, and then, uh, I've, proceeded to build the studio in the basement of the place, which was just like a dirt basement. It was like an unfinished basement. So now I'm sitting in a small but legit recording studio built in the basement of our new home in Philly. Congrats on that, man. That's awesome. Thanks. It was just, it's a long story, you know, but it was, it was just these uh, turn of events that were things lined up and worked out. But a lot of it involves being brave too, because it's like come January, we're still in pandemic and it's like, I kind of have more pressure on me to work more. Yeah. And, uh, come January. And, um, cause I've been working remotely, you know, been working remotely a lot with different people, but still not as much as during regular times, you know? Yeah. And obviously there's no gigs, you know? Right. Right. There's no, none of that. Yeah. Um, some people play some sort of outdoor gigs in front of a coffee shop or in the middle of the street, but I haven't been called to do those. <laughs> yeah. I haven't done any of that, man. I mean, I literally like the last gig I did was a, probably five days before the official mm. uh, announcement in March. Me too. Me too. Yeah. March 8th was my last one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was, and it was crazy because um, I can't, I've said this before on here, but like, just to give a picture like basically that the way that gig looked it was it was a great gig it was fun like the musician it was with mark letary and it, oh, was, cool. it was a trio gig and it, it was a lot of fun man but the actual setup of the gig is like a covid19 nightmare scenario because <sighs> we played at this place in downtown la there wasn't a stage it was right on the floor and there were you know, it was beautiful. There are a lot of people there, but they basically surround the playing area. So it's basically like a sea of people facing us, breathing in our direction, man. <laughs> so, 
so this is this is like some shit that like no one would want to face right now and um yep yeah it was it was such a bizarre it's so bizarre how now that whole situation is like that's it's like a death wish almost but but anyway yeah it stuff turned on a dime i was recording with people i guess in in someone's like home studio when when that whole thing when the when the announcement came and that was literally probably the last time i did something like that everything else i've been doing has been remote and oh, yeah. there's there's comfort with that but it's also not the, it's weird when you don't have the option of other things right yeah um like my last gig was on march 8th and it was for a guy produced a cd release and it, it turns out like a bunch of those people on that gig and I think there were kind of like 10 musicians involved. And of course, there was a live audience ended mm-hmm. up getting COVID, but they nobody died. You know, they just got sick for a bit and then got better. And wow. then two days after that, I flew with my wife out to Eugene to get my mom out of uh, assisted living, like a nursing home to move her to the East Coast out of you know Eugene, Oregon. Yeah. And we <laughs> we ended up on a 4 a.m. flight on the 12th back to the east coast and everybody at this point you know there's headlines everywhere the tvs are going nuts it's like i felt like we just escaped like we just barely got there and just barely got her out of out of eugene and into you know into the new facility outside philly so it's crazy turn of events and that place went on lockdown right as we dropped her off and the other place went on lockdown right as we picked her up and then since then (laughs) i think i won session after that and then it was just over, you know, but it's funny because my my stepmother and other, you know, peripheral people that aren't musicians like family people, mm-hmm. she said uh, she said and other people say the same thing. She said, well, you're a performer, so it must be uh, difficult because you rely on the feedback of the audience to give you energy. And I, I said this speaks to what you were saying earlier about small stages. I said, no, that's not it at all. I, I, what, what is killing me right now, as far as playing live is not having that, that musical telepathic dialogue, like nonverbal communication with your tribe saying these things that you can't say through words, you know, with music, there's a whole mess of things you just cannot say through words. So that's been hard to not say that, you know? Yeah. And I mean, the camaraderie that's, too, you know. Yeah, yeah. camaraderie, the hang, um, yeah. working stuff out, like the synergy that happens. Maybe even depending on like if you didn't have as many rehearsals as you thought you should, then there's like some magic that happens that stuff kind of tightens up on its own, or you know, like there's a vibe that carries those parts. I don't know, man. Like there's, I, I definitely miss that part of it. Um, but I mean, I guess the thing is, like, one thing that's cool about you is like you also are a multi instrumentalist and so like do you find that do you find that like has has that time period that we're in now like has that fueled any kind of like do you find like on some level you can still maintain like some kind of level of creativity that that feels fulfilling or do you feel like the do you feel like a key piece of it is also just being able to play as a combination of that with all the other stuff you know, not playing with people is just not playing with people. So that's, I really miss that, you know, but uh, writing wise, I have like a million little beginnings of ideas mm-hmm. and I have some 
other ideas that are a little more fleshed out, but it's been, I have to really push myself to write because a lot of people are saying, uh, oh man, you must be writing your ass off during this time. You just grab this moment to be more creative. And it, it just didn't happen like that for me. I've had little creative blips, you know, but it was, there was so much drama with this, with moving my mother out here and then, um, and then trying to buy this house and then trying to, you know, get all the financial stuff in order, which we've all been faced with the unemployment and the PPP stuff, SBA, whatever grants. And, you know, that's just time consuming. And then, and then there was seven weeks of my, of a build out going on in my basement. So the house was like a construction zone and I was crammed into a little room. So it's like when I've been working, it's just been work, like edit this thing, send it back to somebody, you know, mix this thing, send it back to somebody. Uh, I did get into scoring strings and, and co-arranging some horns and things like that, which that's creative because you have to sit down and write it and then voice it out and, make sure you know you have to that's a creative process so i did do that (laughs) but i can't say that i've written you know another three albums of material like maybe some other people can i i went through bursts of practicing Uh uh-huh so that that's been good you know and then there's a basement to practice in which i've never had wow (laughs) since i was like 21 you know so yeah, that's. I mean, that's got to feel good. At least you got a place you can you can play drums, uh, and you can you can kind of you don't have to worry about you don't have to worry about sharing that time with other drummers, which I know was sort of a thing that people did in the city. You know, uh, people would share like a rehearsal space, and I don't know. That's got to be that's got to be cool. Um, yeah, I shared a spot a bunch of years ago, and it was like your slot is Friday from nine to noon. You know what I'm saying? And also Mondays from 10 to to 1. Like, so I would miss, you know, I I wouldn't always make that that time slot. And then I'd come a little late and then somebody would cut it off. So it just, you know, get frustrating. You just want your own. I think, I, I don't know about, I think everybody feels this way. It's like musicians get in the zone to practice at random hours sometimes, you know. Yep. So it's like you take care of all your crap for the day and then 3 p.m., bam, okay, I'm going to do this, you know, or 5 p.m. or 6 a.m. or it's just inspiration strikes or the other crap is out of the way at a certain point. It's, you can't have it be um, this consistent time every day, you know. How do you feel? I mean, the the way I look at it, um, you know, I mean, I, I have my own place out here and I, I live by myself. So a lot of the way life has been during this period, like I've been practicing a lot of bass, but I've also been practicing a decent amount of guitar and, um, you know, like I make tracks all the time. So my quote unquote production, beat making, uh, sound editing, um, stepped up stuff like all that stuff's been kind of i've been flexing that stuff a lot man because that's great i'm getting ready to write some new music and and um you know with with bass i mean i'm always playing it to a certain extent but i go through phases where the type of things i practice are not necessarily what like you know I'll, i'll maintain technical things just so they don't atrophy because it's easier to just keep stuff 
in shape versus like letting it go and then trying to get it back. But Mm -hmm. I go through a phase where I just try to play stuff that I hear and I try to like apply that in a way where there's something practical I could bring to like a real life situation. Like how many times would it take me to play like a good take on this? Like, could I do it one time? You know what I mean? You know, so it's like, I try to, I try to work on that stuff um, when I can, but um, I've also just been getting into like getting different sounds. So, um, but yeah, no, it, it hits me at weird times. Like, I mean, I'm random times, right? Random times. Yeah. I still like the dead of the night though, man. Like I still think for me sometimes like starting around midnight, like I've definitely had nights where like I've, I've stopped playing and, and like the sun starts to come up and uh, it, it reminds me of my school days. Yeah. Uh, like, like, like at, uh, like at Berkeley, but schedule. Um, yeah, exactly, man. But cause it, there's really nothing that there's really nothing that's keeping me in line with anything um, other than just deadlines that I would have. So it's like, you know, but I've been trying to live on some kind of a schedule. And so I, I've kind of got it dialed. But um, I don't know, man, that's it's I think it's a cool thing to be able to have that time to uh, to work on stuff. But, yeah, it's weird. I definitely I definitely have been grateful that it's that, you know, I've, I've been able to, like, work on some things. But but, yeah, I don't have a set. I don't have a set practice time. And there's definitely days where I, I don't practice. And I feel like it's probably better that it's like that, you know, like because I, I feel like when I do practice it's got intent there, you know, or I feel like I'm connected to it, you know, sometimes I'll noodle around like, yeah, like I got, you know, I got stuff, I got, I got instruments kind of in every corner. So, you know, I've definitely like, I'll definitely watch TV and like pick something or, you know, like work at something. But that's uh, that's the thing I'll watch. I'll watch TV and then take out the pad and get it with the pad. Like yeah. I need my eyes to be doing something else while I'm doing something very boring, like, you know, or whatever. <laughs> I mean, not that that's boring, but you know, it, it becomes a little boring, but if you're, if you're, if you're split in another direction, you know, it offsets it. Yeah. Well, I think especially if it's something you're trying to get to a place where you're not, it's not something you think about, you know, it's more of like exactly. a breathing component of the playing versus like, I have to give this part my attention because I don't know what I, you know, it's not something I've encountered before. So then you're hyper-focused on it, you know, and yeah. I don't, you do find that sometimes you have things that come up like that and then you have to get them to the place where they're not something you'd actively think about. You know, you just sort of like you hyper-focus and then you, you, it becomes something you can work on while you're watching TV or, you know, listening to something like a, like people talking like an interview or like a, a news report or something uh i mean that's just technique type stuff if you're breaking down a paradiddle for example on a pillow at 52 bpm yeah. that's really boring you know uh but it's very important to be able to get control of that paradiddle i'm just using a simple example right at right. 54 bpm and lower because that's the foundation of your playing you know yeah you want yeah. that like a deadly heavy quarter note inside everything you're doing and like super control steve gad type control which is like the thing i want to get to in my playing like the more super control and the super um crazy ridiculous quarter note running through everything 
and that patient thing, you know, uh, I'm trying to get to that, like grown man style, you know, grown man stuff <laughs> than, rather than like shred stuff. I mean, it ends up enable you, enabling you to shred better, but it's, uh, it's the, the meat and potatoes, but you were, you're talking about like, um, getting things to where you don't have to think about it anymore. I mean, I think all practice is based on that, you know, yeah. like playing a groove for half an hour, you know, the first 10 minutes, you can't quite play it yet. And then the next 20 minutes you get to where you can play it, but it's still like uh, a little awkward, you know, or a little bit you're thinking about it. And then the next 30 minutes you get to where you've stopped thinking about it and you don't even realize that you've been playing it perfectly for the last 20 minutes, you know, at at an hour to that, it's like you could blow your nose and eat a sandwich and (laughs) play that groove, you know? Exactly. Um, And that's, I think that's the goal of all practice, right? Is a complete subconscious uh, effortless mastery. Yeah. Um, I also think there's, there's ways now to gauge what's happening. I think, that were prior, like maybe in a way, not the previously they were unavailable, you know, like you can, I think one thing that's really changed my playing a lot. And I would imagine you'd probably echo this as I would imagine most musicians would home recording has really changed. Oh yeah. Changed the way I like play and think about pulse and think about like placement. Um, You know, cause it's like you, you, you probably have your sweet spots where, you know, where stuff fits really well, but then occasionally there's like a weird tempo that you're not, it's not home to you and you have to like figure out how to meet it. And, you know, I've, I've had sessions like that where, you know, I've had to like, you know, it's, it's made me a better timekeeper in some ways to, to approach things from, from, you know, a different perspective. But, but, you know, the, the thing about home recording is that like, um, doing remote stuff. I mean, you, you can totally see where your shit lands and it's right <laughs> in the transients. And I think sometimes that can be a really amazing thing. Cause it's like, wow, you know, I'm, I'm, I feel like I'm hitting this the right way. And then there's other places where it's like, okay, I got to breathe here. I got to figure out how to like, you know, this, this sort of, this person wants to push this little part. Like, how do I meet that? You know? So it's like, I don't know. It's, it's sort of this weird it's 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 like more abstract ways of thinking about music and yet i think these are the things that really differentiate one person from another like whoever works on that stuff versus like it maybe that's not a priority for everybody you know it's an awareness of it you know yeah Uh, i mean that's that's a heavy topic because i i mean i got pro tools 15 years ago like beginning of 05 yeah and uh i started recording myself and of course i did tons of sessions as a freelance drummer before that but it was always like this is my shot i'm in the studio i'm <laughs> fucking up you know like gotta get it gotta kill it gotta smash it gotta impress them you know maybe they'll call me back again that was kind of the philosophy and uh but once i started recording myself every day and uh, i was inside you know i was in my apartment so i didn't have the ability to like hit as hard as normal you start to see how the the mic responds better to you playing quietly especially cymbals you know it's like so like i never smash a crash cymbal 
like once I figured out that symbols don't respond record well to being hit hard, uh, I, I I always just you know, like I would just hit it just enough to get it to shimmer and and wash over things in the right way. And I I never went back and smashed a symbol again after I got that little bit of recording knowledge. And seeing videos of myself back, I, I my default is a lot kind of more tone oriented and soft, yeah, kind of thoughtful approach, which is not the way I played. I was more of a power player before, but I remember seeing Keltner play, mm-hmm. and he was just tapping the drums and playing random things in random places, but the sound out front was an unbelievably profound, airy full rich sound where everything made sense you know and i was just like how is it it looks like he's barely even playing and yet this incredible sound is coming out and same thing happened when i saw purdy play once too Hmm. it's like this sound is so huge and so powerful and rich and correct and yet the guy's just tipping you know wow so the that's another aspect of the recording thing you know that that can happen yeah, and dynamics and dynamics. as drums you know your drums you you I, I heard your wolf podcast the other day and i think steve and i have even talked about this it's like do you have an epiphany moment yeah which is really good to have with drums because it's you know there's no melody or chords so you want to be as musical as possible the epiphany moment being the the more involved you are with recording and like programming and constructing songs from the bottom up it's like, wow, this song sounds great with no fills, you know, (laughs) (laughs) you know, I would program a beat like Mm -hmm. just goes for 10 minutes, lay down a guitar part, lay down a bass part, put a scratch vocal, put a scratch other guitar, put a scratch harmony, put a keyboard part. And so that's like, you know, two, three hours of working through this process. And the whole time it's just the static beat. And it's like, well, that sounds great (laughs) i don't need any crash cymbals i don't need any fills you know so for a drummer to have an epiphany that it sound that you can be you can say a lot with that little is uh is a game-changing moment you know yeah no that's Um, true but um let's let's go back let's talk about the early years so you you started doing drums like were you like 14 was that was that yeah uh yeah, th- let me see. September '82, and that was like two months before I turned 14. Okay. So, and yeah, basically. You were, 14. In, okay, so you were in Philly at that time, right? Is that when you started playing drums? Yeah, we moved to Philly. I lived. I was born in LA, and we lived in Southern California. Wow. Until I was seven, and then when I was seven, we moved to Philly right during the bicentennial. Okay. And um, like seven suburbs, suburbs of Philly, and. Uh, we moved to England for a year and I fell in love with music watching Top of the Pops. I mean, I was, I always liked music, but I fell in love, like became obsessed with music and rock and roll and things like that from watching Top of the Pops. When we came back, we moved to this area called Marion, which is in the main line of Philly. Mm-hmm. And um, little did I know it, but it was like a, this like deceptively, uh, badass um creation ground for all these dope drummers so yeah 
What was your next question? <laughs> oh, no, no, that's cool. Um, what, what was the thing on top of the pot? Like, what was the music thing that, that grabbed you? Like, what was the kind of like the lightning in a bottle moment that you witnessed that was like, I'm going to do drums? Or was it, was it more holistic? Like, was it more just no, it was, it was music first, you okay. know. Uh, but it was during that period that, you know, there were pots and pans. And I started tapping on them. I would beatbox. Um, and yeah, the top of the pops at that time was like Elvis Costello, you know, Blondie, Gloria Gaynor, Boomtown Rats, um, uh, Gary Newman, you know, and just the image and the charisma of these people and those songs and the singable melodies. And I would just kind of like sing along and tap along, beatbox along. Right. Um, and at home, my dad had friends that were real hip, so they had him listening to hip music. So this is a, this is another <laughs> hidden gift: is that you know you'd be sitting there at dinner, and uh, Art Art Tatum's playing in the background, or oh, Duke Ellington, yeah. or Fats Waller, or Songs to Give Life, Stevie, or all, any one of a number of Motown people, Smokey Robinson. Or Dylan, Beatles, or Wagner, or, you know, just sophisticated high art music, just nonstop. So, and that wasn't the music I was choosing, but that's what was around. So that, that's another part of it. Right. What were you into? I mean, so like that was sort of in the background or the foreground, depending on like what, where you were in proximity to that. But what was your stuff of choice? Like what was the... Well, were yeah, the so the stuff of choice was all that top of the pop stuff i guess you could call it pre-new wave okay so we're talking like but late days into the 80s right yeah yeah 79 78 79 so um around 80 81 is when all of a sudden and i think for a lot of us it's like zeppelin like the minute john bonham died and i heard about that i all of a sudden got way into zeppelin and way into hendrix and way into cream you know the heavy rock stuff and um the doors and the classic stuff but that's you know the best of it and of course zeppelin like the opening drum fill of uh misty mountain hop you know dun, 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 dun. the second i heard that was like a light bulb going off like i have to play drums or i want to be near that or be able to do that it was just a unconscious thing yeah but um i was flirting from when from when we moved to the main line after that year in england there was like a snare drum class or introductory um introductory drum class in our middle school which was balakinwood middle school and there were a bunch of drummers in the class and one of the drummers was this guy andy kravitz mm -hmm. and the other one was me and then there was like three other people and um I was so out of it, or I don't know what it was, but it's like we had to go get sticks. So we took the first, you know, two classes or something. At some point, you got to get sticks and a pad. And I didn't do that. So I didn't practice. And so somewhere, maybe the fourth or fifth class, they lined up the class in terms of best and worst. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I was the worst because I was just showing up and playing whatever sticks were there and not knowing what the hell was going on. And the best was Andy because he was, that was his point of falling in love with the drums and just going for it and all the other ones in the middle were these kind of in intermediary guys that never ended up doing music so 
the first drummer I ever met in life is Andy Funky Drummer Kravitz, who to this day is one of the most funky, soulful, deep, emotional players I've ever met, you know, and of course, an engineering genius and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And, um, but also at the school was Steve Wolf. And, but Steve and I didn't meet through drums. We met through art because I was one of those kids that was really into visual art. Like that was actually my thing before music was visual art. So I was, um, I would draw pictures for the student magazine and for the yearbook and things like that. And Steve was another one who sketched all over the backs of his books and manuscripts and things. Yeah. And they would put us together. And, uh, but I, my art thing was further along than his. So, you know, he would defer to me a lot. Um, but I, I found out that he played drums and he was, he could play his ass off, you know, at 11, 12, so it's like the first drummer I met was Andy. Second drummer was Steve. And um, that's heavy. It's it's crazy. It's so heavy, you know. Uh, and Andy was, I think he was going through a period where he was like moving out of his parents' house. There was a lot of drama and a lot of turmoil. And he was out in the clubs playing with bands and kind of having this chaotic, rebellious moment in life. So I didn't hang around with him much, but I went and hung around with Steve a lot. And uh, so there's probably like a year and a half of going over to Steve's house before ninth grade where I got, you know, got to where I could just play a lot of stuff on the drums without actually having a drum set. Hmm. And, um, I remember one time Andy and Steve were there and I was just being a hanger on or whatever. And they took me aside after I sat down and played a bunch of things without officially being a drummer. And they said, we don't want any competition but you got to get a drum set, <laughs> you know, it's like, we don't actually want you to start playing. So we don't want any fucking competition, but you got to get a drum set. It's just uh, out of love, you know? Yeah. So that was the, so my first kit was Andy's. I bought my first kit off of Andy, which was his first kit that he bought off of Steve, which I think was Steve's first kit. Oh man. A $65 Stewart kit. I think I can't, maybe, maybe the brand name is wrong. But it went through three. It went through three hands, you know. Started three people off. Wow, man, that's that's kind of that's kind of beautiful, actually. Oh, it's it's really it's really heavy. Yeah, it's yeah. Uh, we go a lot further. Yeah, uh, and and I'm you know I'm not close friends with Andy these days, but I'm in touch with him, you know. And then Steve, I'm still super tight with. Um. Yeah. And uh, he's very, you know, he's a very uh, guru type person in many ways. Yeah. Um, but we've all gone different paths within the same, you know, even though we're all drummers, like we've all gone very different directions as drummers. So it's these days it's even more supportive of each other. It's like, well, but you do this. I do this, but you do that. You know, like that kind of always trying to empower and lift, you know. I think that just happens too, man, with, with, I always hate when people add this, but like when, with age, right? Like the more wisdom you get, like the more comfortable people get in the lanes that they, they either chose for themselves or the universe chose for them. And and it's not, it's really not this, this competitive thing in, in the spirit of wanting to outdo 
your homie. It's more just like, okay, this is where I ended up with it. And that's where you ended up with it. And it's, and it's cool. We're all here in this place together, you know? Yeah. Yeah. If you, if you evolve, it's like, if you keep growing and you keep evolving, you see right away that it's just a, it's just a voice. Like, uh, you're just a person with a sound on an instrument, you know? Yeah. It's like, if you, if somebody wants what Steve Jenkins does, but they want, you know, if they want Willie Weeks and they know Willie Weeks, but they call you and ask you to be Willie Weeks. Yeah. But you know what I'm saying? Or if they call Willie Weeks saying, could you be <laughs> Steve Jenkins? You know, it's like, it's, you know, smart people don't do things like that. They're, they're going to call Steve Jenkins to be Steve Jenkins. Yeah. Grow up, you know? Yeah. That's the uh, dream. I mean, I think we all, yeah the things where there's the there's the functional employable side of yeah where you end up especially like as you know we're both rhythm section guys it's like you know you have part of the vocabulary is you just learn how to do something like that so if someone throws it out you know because I've, I've definitely definitely listened to a ton of stuff that willie weeks has played on and and of course yeah. Yeah. there's you know i've i've done my homework with <clears throat> of that kind of playing and i love it but um yeah i don't even you know it's weird man i don't even really know sometimes like what what i get called for what what comprises what i do but i know when i feel good about the thing that i'm on like where it's like okay that that was a good fit for what i'm for what i feel like my my whatever my thing is um so i don't know i sometimes i just i try not not to analyze it you know but i can i know i know yeah but i go by how it feels and i definitely know there's stuff that feels extremely correct and then there's stuff where it's like okay this is like i'm kind of acting a part but i care about doing a good job when i when i do that thing you know so it's like but i think we all like i think drummers and bass players and probably guitar players too. I mean, like if, if you're doing four higher stuff, that's just sort of part of it. I think, you know, Yeah, you get, th- you'll get thrown out of your comfort zone and find yourself in places where you're maybe not meant to be. But if you're out there freelance like that, you, that's just part of the deal. That's just the terrain, you know? Yeah. It's weird, man. Like the first drummer I ended up playing with in LA was James Gadson just by chance. And oh, man. <laughs> It was like, and it was wow. like doing this, it was doing this music that was kind of like, it, it was, I, I felt kind of bad because it was definitely stuff that was like written in a style of stuff that he actually played on. And I, I don't, I don't know if you'd call it a vanity project, but there were some good musicians on that gig. So mm-hmm. like I played my P bass and I played the parts that went with those tunes and, and kind of put that, put that lens on it. And like, Gadsden was into it, and it, but it was like we talked about music a lot because there was like four things we did. And he was like, he's like, I can tell you play other stuff, though, also. Like, I can tell you probably improvise and do stuff like that. But he's like, you, you sound good on this other stuff. And for me, that was such a great moment. Yeah. And like, because there's not that many people, I think, that can validate you as a bass player or a drummer. But if it's like the right, if it's someone like that, like if, you know, like if you played with Willie Weeks or like – um I know you've done stuff with like source, source people. Yeah. 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 Like just people that were there that did the shit. It's like, man, that's even if, even if like, I don't, I don't know that validation is great past a certain point. Cause you know, people still have to, they still have to live their life and be creative. And, and sometimes some of the greatest stuff was made as like 
other masters of the greatest stuff turn their back on it. You know, it's like, so it's a very tough thing to pick, pick and choose what you're going to let have power over you. But yeah, I felt very, I felt like I, you know, I don't know, man, that was, it was a nice feeling that that dude liked what I was doing, you know, cause it's like, there's definitely music I've done that's so diametrically opposed, not opposed, but like, so, so very different almost than like what that stuff was. So it's like a Gatson besides being such a magical, there's no, nobody with that, that feel, you know, yeah. Like him. He's a singular person, but like the life he, the, the life he's lived in music and what he's seen and he's not on some ego agenda. Uh-huh. You know what I'm saying? It's like, uh, he's the truth and he's a source and he, earned his stripes so for him to say man that feels good it's like any one of us it's like i would trust his word before 95 percent of everybody else because usually when people say things to you that can it can potentially be loaded with their insecurity or their snobbery or their pigeonholing or how they feel at that moment you know what i'm saying like um so that and that's not to trash my <laughs> my uh, comrades or my peers, but it's just, you know, we're all, if we're all pushing towards something and then you play with people who are already over the mountaintop. Yeah. Yeah. I want to, you know, I, I've told this story a few times of playing with Leo Nostelli the first time. And, yeah. uh, and I had given Leo a tape of a bunch of different stuff I played and he kind of really got into my playing. He liked the, he just really loved what I was doing on this tape of different people and i was just being myself i wasn't trying to do zig or anything so he was familiar kind of with my thing Mm. and then we got to the sound check of the first gig and i'm sitting there you know trying to be a faithful recreator quote unquote (laughs) (laughs) like uh it's like renaissance festival music playing or or uh like i forever bow at the altar of uh, you know al jackson you know so you're up there trying to play exactly like so i was trying to play Zig's parts exactly like Zig and just nail the Zig vibe and nail, you know, like like a student, like a A plus student. Yeah. And he took me aside and he said, Man, I know you can play. Just play your shit. I've had enough notoriety in my in my life. I don't need people walking out of the club talking about me. I want them to talk about you. Wow. Don't be afraid. He's like, I know you want to nail Zig stuff, but there's only one Zig, but there's also only one you. And, you know, he said it real pointed, like, like the, you know, Yoda saying it to you <laughs> or uh, some kind of person on the mountaintops. It was real heavy to get that door opened from him like that, you know, and really generous, but, too, you know, yeah, it was so generous. And it's like my peers wouldn't give me that, you know, and other band band leaders wouldn't give me that. Uh, but I got it from him. So that was just like the, the beginning of me starting to realize I've got something to say, you know? Yeah. Um, but our generation tends to be, it's a, it's kind of rough for us because, you know, you've, his generation, you've got your Hendrix, you've got your Jocko, you've got your um, Herbies and your Gads and your, you know, all these people that are just like, set that they laid down the 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 archetype of what this is or what that is and it's like i feel like a lot of our generation is spent being students of that still you know and we have to kind of like grab a hold of that and get rid of it and become 
our own James Gadsons, our own Leos, our own Herbies or whatever. Oh yeah. No, you I know what I'm saying? Yeah. I mean, honestly, that was my personal takeaway from uh being in New York. because uh, I you know, and I, I guess I was gonna ask you about New York later. Yeah. This is going to be a quick little detour, but um, sure. like my my whole thing was like my attraction to New York, for example, was mostly because of the creative music scene. Like I didn't really think about the other stuff that was happening there, even though I feel like I probably should have because it maybe would have been a different experience. But I think my my interests were mostly on people who made interesting music there. That, you know, I mean, everyone, I think just about everybody makes cool music in New York. At least when I was moving down there, it felt like no matter what it was, like there was even, even in like the early 2000s, like there were still people kind of trying to do interesting stuff. Um, You know, there's also a weird amount of status quo shit too, which I kind of didn't like seeing after a certain point. But um, what do you mean uh, status quo? It just seems like there's, you know, you've got people that are definitely doing weird stuff that can only exist in that city. But then, you know, it's like, you've got like, I mean, I felt like the Rockwood scene, you had some of that, like some of the, it was really hard to tell certain things apart from each other, you know, like that. I'm not really indicting anybody. It was just an observation. (laughs) Yeah. It's a little like a generic, well, there's like generically creative, you know, yeah. Like, I mean, obviously like, uh, yeah, there is a lot of that in New York. Sorry, I'm, I'm trying to put my words together here. Yeah. For example, if you have a Wayne Krantz, like Wayne Krantz, there was no Wayne Krantz before him. Right. New York, you know, so Wayne like forcibly carved out his thing and with a certain set of people and they carved out a sound together and it became a scene and it became a magnet to him and it enabled him to be Wayne Krantz and created his world from that. But you've got all these B-level Wayne Krantz or C-level Wayne Krantz or, or whatever. And it, they don't even necessarily need to be guitar players, but it's just like people playing kind of up-tempo fusion stuff, right. shifting meters with a million chords, like designed to blow your face off, designed to impress. Yeah. It's like, but it's like, yeah, but it's not with the ferocity of what Wayne's doing or the Im- emotional oh. impact or, you know, you don't hit those big moments where there's all of a sudden like a big rock chorus, you know, with these big voicings, you know, like they, the music wouldn't be there, the, but the ego and the pretense would be there and the technical thing. It's like, no, that's not it. Bro. Yeah. So be a lot of that kind of like trying to try to be cutting edge, but you're not because you're still copying somebody else is cutting edge just like cutting edge means like searching with inside yourself for you know what your statement is right yeah that's i mean that was the other part that i got being there too was like ultimately ultimately a lot of the musicians that people want to emulate are probably your neighbors you know and yeah it's like yeah it's like you have people have to reckon with that like you know i've told this to a few people, man. And and you know this cause we've talked about this yeah. like, over the years, but like, you know, I really was into Matt Garrison's playing and I, I kind of studied that stuff. And then I think around not long into being in New York, it just 
kind of dawned on me, like, I'm not going to get called for that kind of thing, you know? And even if, even if I did, like, I can't do it the way Matt does it. So if I have to play that way, I have to find my own way to do it. And so I really got into this idea of, I mean, this is like kind of a weird thing, but it's like, I stopped thinking about playing like a super interesting instrument. Like I started playing Fender basses again for a while, just to play an instrument that everyone uses. To sort like, of, a four, like a four string. Yeah. Yeah. I play like a four string. Um, I, you know, I play five string a lot too, but I think my idea was I wanted to figure out like, what, what do I actually have? Like, what, what do I like as far as vocabulary? Like what actually can I do? You know, like I wanted to kind of like strip the pretenses away. And um, I think that was a, for me, pr I think everyone probably has their thing that they get from like being in a place like New York. But I know, like, I know it changed my playing a lot just from like thinking about stuff like that, playing with people that I admired and sort of like getting the hard truths from those situations, which was like, this is cool, but maybe this isn't what I thought it was, you know, th these are all valuable experiences, but yeah, like I think in terms of the thing that I've kind of come to appreciate is that like a lot of the people who really are unique, they took their knocks for it, you know? And, oh, and yeah, yeah, definitely one of those things where it's like, you know, I mean, I, I respect everybody who's out there doing stuff. Like I don't have much to say about it, but like to your point, like with the, Crants and then sort of like the army of clones that follow <laughs> yeah. um, dude look i've seen and i know i know you've probably seen them a million times when i didn't live in new york i would come down from boston and i, I would take like the the chinatown bus or whatever but literally no like around what was that no standy yeah <laughs> those, those signs on the bus that would say no standy no standy oh yeah, what ee -E, you know exactly man and the thing was like that those things weren't always um tour bus size like they were like airport shuttles at yeah, yeah. the beginning so like that's how far back with that shit that I, I went but um i just remember there were definitely nights where the line would go from the door to the 55 bar all the way to the corner of 7th avenue man and it's like that's not because someone's playing some weird abstract shit that's unrelatable like there's like some visceral stuff happening with that music and i would gather that like some of those p it wasn't all like nyu kids in line at that show like i'm pretty sure it was like there was some buzz going on you know i'm sure it was like maybe a lot of musicians but it didn't feel that way it was like an it factor you know it's like it's all the chops are there and all the improvisation is there and the kind of bravado or whatever like the kind of muso things that will get all you know people at a clinic in the room those things are there but then there's a cosmic emotional thing that's also there that keeps people coming back because it's sort of related to magic and those guys had it and they were confident in it you know yeah uh, and maybe other people didn't realize what it was you know but i remember seeing wayne i mean i've jammed with wayne in the 90s on and off because like, yeah. he would always be up to jam. But I remember seeing him and going up to him afterwards, and I was like, do you love Todd Rundgren, don't you? <laughs> you know, and he was like, oh, man, and we started bonding on the certain Todd records that we love, you know, kind of rock songwriter records. And so he, even though 
you know, we're at 55 and they're playing instrumental and there's all these kind of electric jazz hybrid fusion um, information going down and kind of scene of people. He's pulling from all music, you know, which I, that's probably part of the secret too, you know, and Tim as well. It's like you'd be pulling from a white stripes and pulling from black keys or radiohead or whatever, like the, not just um, from jazz information or fusion information or harmonic information. It's like all kinds of music was there present. Yeah. Ready to be accessed, you know. Um, I was going to, you said something earlier that made me think of something. Oh, this is what I always try to explain to people about New York mm -hmm. uh, who are always like on the edge of wanting to go to New York. Like in Philly, for example, there's a, you know, there's always a ton of beasts around in Philly. But, you know, if you come up in Philly and you're like, you get to the, where you're the top of the heap in Philly, but you never go to LA or New York or Nashville or um, experience the world, you might be Joe Shredder, keyboard player or a guitar player, but you're like just the most advanced guy in town. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Whereas like if, if you're, the most advanced guy in town in Philly or Detroit or whatever city, and you go, you go to New York and you see immediately 50 other of the most advanced guys in town right there in front of you. But they're all carving out their style. You know, there's Schofield, there's Adam Rogers, there's Fuse, there's Wayne, there's, you know, yeah. uh, there's Hiram back when I, you know, he was still there when we got there. So, it forces you to think on your feet really fast. Like, well, what the fuck is my concept? Because these guys are all, they all can do as much as me, but they're doing way more swagger, you know? Right. So what's my, what's my thing? And it forces you to do that. And I remember coming to New York and my goal was to be somewhere between <laughs> Dennis Chambers, Tane Watts, Omar, and Steve Jordan. That was like my, that was where I was at at that time, you know, and I was just came ready to kill and like, I got all this facility, you know, yeah. smash it and kill it. And a few gigs I didn't get called back for. And people would be like, I, I would say, well, how come they didn't call me back? And they'd, they'd say, well, so-and-so artists thought, they thought you were great, but that you just played too much, you know? So I had to sit down and start thinking about, well, what is really strong in my playing? And that's kind of that I have that most other people that that I think is singular to me that will sound good even playing simple. You know what I'm saying? That's not contingent on me flashing a bunch yeah. of notes. And so I just went in on the groove and and that got me working a lot. And it got me moving towards a style and a sound, which is more, you know, your style and your sound is more evident when you play simpler, right? Uh, but unfortunately, then it got me pigeonholed in, you know, in the rock world and then singer-songwriter singer world and then the R&B world and then the, you know, and I, I kind of wanted to express more than that, but it was good at that time, you know, and it forced me to think, forced me to think conceptually and, and deeper, not just about getting vocabulary and information and like displaying all of it at once. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's also different now because I think 
there's more ways to show people your full range of stuff. Mm. Um, so you have like people have a way to control some of that narrative, but but you know it's it's a delicate balance, right? Like it's one of those things where you know people could see one video or hear one thing and think that's all that you do. <laughs> and if you have a if you if a lot of people have a range that that transcends that, you know, and I think that can be something that can it's not a detriment in and of itself, but because of the way people tend to want to like get a handle on something or like be able to pin something down just so it makes sense to them. Um, I think that, you know, that it's a constant thing where people need to, uh, you know, if they feel like they're not getting recognized for, for certain things, it's like there's ways I think maybe to, to fight it a little bit. I mean, I definitely think about that sometimes with, the social media stuff and Instagram. Like I try to post stuff. I try to post enough pocket stuff. So mm. if anything crazy, it's like people don't think that's all I'm doing. But you know, yeah, yeah. Yeah, post the thing that maybe you aren't known for. You yeah. know, I think you'd known for pocket, but I'm just saying it's like whatever it is, whatever it is, um, that it seems to be that people don't realize you do post that, you know. Yeah. But um, I think there's also a weird power that people have though. Like if people haven't heard their full capabilities, you know, uh, like, like in your case, I mean, like, I, I think, I think we are, we played the, for the first time with fuse, right. It was like I think 2006 yeah. or something like yeah. uh, for, for something at, I think there's a few shows it was like knitting factory. Like we did that fretless festival and the late night at the blue note thing too. Right. Right. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, those were uh, those. I remember the blue note. I think both of them were really cool, but I remember the blue note being pretty magical feeling. Yeah, you know? um, yeah. What were you? But what were you about to say about that? I'm sorry. Oh, so I mean that and yeah, that music. I don't know. In a weird way, it's like uh, we're talking about Dave Fusinski's music. Like Fuse's stuff, especially that material. It it is pretty much like pocket oriented stuff, even though there's there's room to to stretch with certain things i think by and large he still wants he wants the rhythm section to be consonant uh and he wants what goes on top of that to be maybe more dissonant you know so it's like for him he needs people that can that can play songs but that can also flex you know when it's time to flex yeah 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 um you know, no, you always love the groove. Yeah. Love the groove. But then if you could really get it on top of that, then he really would want to work with you. Um, yeah. It was, and, and when you play that stuff, you know, it felt great, man. Like, I remember, like, I've definitely done that gig. Like, at that point, I mean, there are always drummers kind of rotating in and out. Um, yeah. <laughs> and so it was like, you know, I mean, everyone played that stuff the constant was everyone put it down where it needed to be put down, you know, but, and then when there was places for it to be interpreted, people would put their spin on it. But yeah, I mean, it, it felt like home to me, man. I mean, that, that, that was it. Like, I think that was a cool situation. You know, it's like any situation where you play music for, with someone for a while, you can kind of just adapt to whoever's playing it with you. And it's, it's enjoyable. It's not, you know, like, a gig like that, like you have to have people that 
can kind of just come in and like learn the shit and then you can just kind of relax with it you know you can kind of just play it and have an experience with it you know like any situation where you got folks coming in that kind of have enough of the vocabulary and you just vibe and it's and it's like enjoyable and it can kind of be what it is it doesn't have to be like you know he was never the kind of band leader that wanted someone to sound like the person who may have played on the record you know he was always very like you know fine he's definitely he was definitely ready to hear you if you had something to bring to the table he's ready for that you know uh i think in the case of us doing that gig it's like it's like I had, I had logged a lot of time with Fuse in earlier years. You know, I mean, I subbed in the Torsos in 95, 96, 97. Yeah. Uh, maybe a little bit in 98 to, you know, the Sofia Ramos time. But, uh, so you know, and the alternating drummers were JoJo and Rodney Holmes, Gene Lake. And uh, and then that Keith, you know, Keith and his trios. I mean, I'd done a ton of stuff between 90. 99 2000 and then when i 2001 i think a little bit and then 2002 he came to la the year i was there and we did tour and i've known him since 87 i knew him socially you know through al pahanish who was the first drummer of the torsos and uh just the scene but so by the time you played with me and him he and i had shared a ton of time together musically on stage and off so there was we had something built in you know even though I was coming back in after years away. Um, but it was interesting when I, when I first played it in the torsos, I was kind of scared when I heard that first album, because it was just so crazy, you know, so genre hopping on a dime and like uh, Jojo was playing crazy stuff, which I could play that stuff, but that that's where he lived, you know? So I had to work, to play like that and especially i was moving away from playing all that stuff so um i remember playing in the courses and they always dug it but it would be like yeah you're like the buddy miles <laughs> you know what i'm saying uh and they would say that even if i was just like shredding from top to bottom of the gig it because it didn't feel like shredding it felt like there was some sort of pocket going on whereas with jojo or Rodney, for example, it felt more per- like this uh, frenetic, percolating thing, you know. Oh, they they have great grooves too. I guess it's just where I was coming from is maybe I'm coming more from Buddy Miles than Vinnie Calyuta at that point, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean that's that's definitely you know that's definitely one of those things. Um, I don't know if that band was like a rite of passage, but it just seemed like if you look at all the people that have like played in that band or played with him i mean you know it's like a pretty amazing group of oh, but um so wait let's go like sorry you started in philly then you yeah. you ended up in boston for a little bit for high school and then you were at berkeley and um i always wonder about this with with people that kind of went um like early 90s and stuff because i think like obviously the landscape's much different now with music education and stuff but like what was your read on that whole thing? Because you were you studied with Alan Dawson, right? Like, wasn't that one okay, of so your... Here's the, here's the chronology. Okay. I was in Philly until uh, 10th grade, and then second half of high school, moved to Boston. But that first half, when I started playing, there was all those guys around, Andy, Steve. There's a drummer named Eric Johnson, who's also phenomenal. Uh, there's other guys, too. And then I moved. And then I 
I was self-taught at that point, and I had a, a teacher named Russell Leach who would just play me records, basically. Hit me to salsa. Like, he just started opening me up. He would just want to hang out and play me records and show me basic things. Eventually, I really needed to get some shit happening because um, I had very little little technical information on the drums. You know what I'm saying? Like, I, I knew a paradiddle, single, double, like some accent. I mean, I, I didn't have anything happening. So I left him and I went to Alan Dawson. It was just like in that first summer of Alan Dawson, it was like a massive transformation from like the pretty good high school talent drummer in the cafeteria, talent show drummer in the cafeteria kind of guy, you know, mm -hmm. to somebody who had actual technique and chops and facility and range, you know. So Alan Dawson, I mean, that was like complete game changer playing wise. And uh, we were living in Winchester and Lexington, I think, is like two towns over. Sure. Yeah. So, Mass, yeah. So, yeah, I would go out there every week. And, um, yeah, I mean, what else do you want to know? I mean, you play vibes with you at the end of every lesson. Um, and you play a standard. And so he get off the drums and hear how you sounded playing with people and how you're listening, how you're playing a song for him. And, you know, he had the whole this whole system of showing you like a combination of 80 something different rudiments um, and then coordination stuff, you know, independent stuff steps you through that and then playing melodies on the drums and then improvising over the song form. I mean, and it was the same system for everybody, you know, but I guess it would manifest inside different people in different ways, you know, so, he, he's like one of those guru guys that everyone he's sort of been immortalized you know but like that was that was one of the things i would hear about a lot when i was there how did you end up at berkeley like was that something you thought about like when you were kind of in high school up there for part of the time or or did, well, you, did you get did you talk to wolf about it like what was the I, well i when i went to winchester there were some talented musicians around but in the drummer department is really really sad so i stepped i kept close contact with Steve, Eric Johnson, Andy, and all my Philly musician friends, because the standards seem to be a lot higher in Philly as far as like musicians in high school or something. Yeah. I don't know what it was, maybe culturally, the Boston working class thing is more repressing people's artistic desires, but musicians in Philly were like getting it in, you know, and going for it and being encouraged. So I kept in touch with that and that was like a standard and it's a good thing i had that standard but yeah if you live in the suburbs of boston everybody's talking about berkeley so that's just uh that's like uh every other every other person that's serious about music is going to try and go to berkeley at some point steve ended up going to berkeley of all the people we knew um and uh, so I kept up with him. And at one point I visited him. Like I didn't go right to college right out of um, right out of high school. I was trying to figure out, trying to get my playing a bit better and trying to figure out the direction, the next direction. It wasn't, I didn't want to go right into Berkeley. I didn't feel ready. And I remember visiting Steve and meeting all these people. Um, I met Jay Belrose. I met Zach Alford. Um, I met Tommy Campbell. Wow. Um, I mean, there was a mess of people 
and they were all right there in the hallway, you know, and Steve would, you know, say, man, Zach Alford has the fattest pocket I've ever heard. It was like crazy, life-changing hearing this guy. You know, he really was profound for him to hear Zach Alford for the first time, you know. Um, and uh, I guess Jay Bellrose was kind of like a, uh, you know, our age, maybe a couple years older, and he was one of the ones that was like the best from his town, you know. And he was initially a total technician at Berkeley and then dropped out and then found himself, quote unquote, and came back as like a kind of Charlie Drayton, Steve Jordan kind of guy, you know, just profound pocket of doom, real attitude. So I was just inspired. I got to get around this, you know. And um, um, yeah, so that's how I ended up back there. And uh, I guess about uh two and a half years into steve i guess it was steve's junior year that's when i finally was at berkeley so it was a little weird for me because people who were my age were in their last year at berkeley okay you know what i'm saying not last year like last year and a half you know so for example layla was my age but she she was gone with by my third semester you know yeah layla halfway yeah yeah and uh but uh, but, but when I came in, like within, yeah, when I came in, Kurt Rosenwinkel was there and I had met Kurt through Steve because Steve was in a fusion band with Kurt in high school and Adam Dorn, who I met, uh, through Steve and through his brothers. Also, I knew Adam's brothers before him. He was at Berkeley. Yeah. Uh, so all these people were there at the same time as me and then Abel Boyle Jr. came, you know? Um, so even though I didn't get to be there with people, my exact age, all these other people were there at the same time as me that were also great people that were maybe a year or two younger. Yeah. So, um, sorry if I'm rambling. No, 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 man. I was going to, so this, this is where I was going to leave with this. So the first, what's weird is like the first time I saw you play and I, I was telling you about this the other, the other day when we were setting this up, like, yeah. So my first semester at Berkeley was the fall of 93 and yep. yep. <laughs> The first recital I saw or that I remember seeing um, and it made a real like some kind of an impression was like it was Ben Butler's. I think it was a senior recital, maybe, but it was like uh, it was, yeah, yeah. It was you on drums, um, Daniel Day on bass. Um, I haven't talked to Daniel in years, but he was he became a friend of mine. And then Steve the people, yeah. on the piano, Bill Vinn on tenor sax i think bill is still in boston i don't know what happened to that dude he was really good and then and then uh ben yeah i have a videotape somewhere of that i think i was wearing one of those zawadol hats oh yeah <laughs> <laughs> world beat hat or something i don't know what you call that kind of hat but yeah right, that might have been my last recital that might have been the last recital i did before i left you know okay but you saw that yeah it's crazy so were you were you still in school then or were you just kind of in between boston and whatever was next like had you had you been starting to go to new york and stuff for gigs or how did I, that work? yeah i was starting to somewhere in 92 and 93 i was starting to occasionally find myself in new york for gigs okay. and same thing once again wolf and and uh a bunch of other friends were were in New York already. You know, Steve had left school. He was playing with Hiram. And so New York was like the promised land where all these people who are our, our idols existed, you know. Yeah. So 
to, but to answer your question, I was not in school in fall of 93. I was just playing professionally in Boston. I think my last semester at Berkeley was spring of 93. Okay. And uh, I wanted, I was, I was going to go to Berkeley in 93, 94. And uh, I finally had straight sevens. I know this sounds stupid because the ratings are <laughs> right. very unrealistic, you know, yeah. but I finally had straight sevens. And even though I was able to get in these good ensembles before with fives and sixes, yeah. now I had sevens. So I was like, yeah, man, I go just get any fucking <laughs> ensemble I want. Yeah, man. You know, like, and they were all taken, all the ones I wanted were taken and I just made an executive decision, like, screw it, I'm out of here. I don't want to take out any more loans. Um, I don't want to waste any more time. Um, you know, I think I was 24, something like that. Just felt like it felt like I needed to start to m do the migration. So that fall was just my last fall, kind of around Boston. Yeah, that, was, yeah. that seems like a smart move, though, man. It's like what what ensembles were the ones you wanted to do? Like, what was the, I can't, I can't remember, you know, I mean, it was, I don't know. I can't remember. Yeah. Something, something you know, Keith Jarrett ensemble or something or, or same thing. It's like at Berkeley, I was pigeonholed as funk fusion guy, probably even more just funk guy. But, and I was so heavy into straight ahead those last two years. I was really trying to be, like I said, somewhere between you know, like a Tane, Elvin, Dijonette, that's what I wanted to do and destroy that pigeonholing. And I, then I, all of a sudden I couldn't get in any of those ensembles. And so I just felt really kind of broken from that. And I just felt like, let me just get out there in the real world and start getting some street knowledge, you know? Yeah. That's important though, man. I also feel like there's a lot of people that they get stuck in that place. Mm -hmm. They get stuck in the jazz thing. And, um, I don't know if that's – I feel like that's, like, the hardest – one of the hardest paths to be on if that's not oh, – Yeah, it's – yeah. Like, you know, I mean, and we – you know, our our mutual friend, like, Derek, I mean, he was pretty close. He was yeah. in that world for a long time, you know? Um, um. Yeah, I've asked him a few times, like, it's like, man, you were kind of with the big, dog, big dogs, you know? Like, was, yeah. why did you – you know, why did you break out of that? And he's like – I think because he was an upright player and he was on on these kind of hard swinging gigs where everybody else was featured except for him and he was just constantly out there playing behind you know 48 choruses behind a sax player yeah you know and the, right just felt like anti musical life or something and he said i i just couldn't do that anymore yeah. So I understood, you know, why he wanted to move away from that. But it's really weird because it's like it's not the music. I think it's like if you haven't found your own reality within that music that's suited to you, then you've got to break off from it and find your way back in on your own terms, you know? Yeah. No, that's a really that's a really astute point, man. I mean, that's cuz I think, you know, that's that's an interesting component of studying music especially at a place that deals with with contemporary music you know like the the jazz thing and what does it mean to study it and what does it mean really in terms of how you apply it to your professional work as a musician like does it mean 
you're going to be a jazz musician in your life or does it mean that you're going to be like a jazz i feel like i'm a jazz adjacent musician man i'm definitely not (laughs) i'm not a jazz musician at all dude like i can i can improvise i know how to play on changes but like i don't like I'm never like I'm not the kind I'm not gonna fucking drive down the 405 listening to Art Blakey. I'm just not, man. I'll, it'll be like Van Halen two or something. <laughs> not, well, I'm like that too, you know. Yeah. Uh, I, it's not yeah. like that. It, I would, you know, I don't even wish that it was. It's just I I love that stuff, and I'm I'm not like comparing those two artists. Of course, I'm just saying like the things that I grab in those moments generally are not those types of records yeah yeah but certain jazz records you would maybe you know what i'm saying like yeah like i might listen to van halen too because what's you know you can't fuck with van halen too i mean that's just the nastiest shit ever right or zeppelin or hendrix or whatever it's not even rock it's just great music period but in the same breath i might just in my musical psychosis go right to nefertiti after that sure yeah. You know, and Nefertiti is a jazz record, but yeah. there's some otherness happening with the way those people play together that's like impressionistic and evocative and you know it's yeah, I mean I don't know, I have so many thoughts about it. I I over the years I basically call myself kind of like a rock a rock funk musician that's jazz trained. You yeah. Know? Yeah. Um, but I've been for the past, let's say five to 10 years, really trying to bring jazz into back into my life. But uh, like I said, on my terms, you know, I don't want to, you'll never see me at some open jam trying to like hang, you know, <laughs> or be rated or be, you know, like going up in a cutting session. It's like, I, I don't give a shit about that. I want to, I want to, pull from this music the way I feel like doing it, you know, like complete self-allow. Um, does that make sense? Oh, no, it, it, it totally makes sense. Like cre- create your existence with it, within it. But that's a whole other topic. I guess we could still keep on the chrono- chronological. Yeah, no, thing. I mean, that's, that's fine, man. We're, we can, yeah. we can veer wherever. I just, like, that's, I think that's just an interesting part of the journey in general, though. Like, for for most people like if you're especially because you're someone that's had a pretty diverse range of of professional experience as a drummer like you haven't really stayed in one corner so so it's like it's it's stands to reason that like um you know like it things are not always going to have this perfect resolve you know like you, you may not use all of the things that you've studied, you know, or, you know, and, and, or you may find yourself, I don't know. The jazz thing seems like there's a lot of levels to it. And I don't know that I'm equipped to unpack all of it, you know, cause I, I feel like I never got into it the way some people did. Like I, for me, it was more about functionality and less about this is my path, you know, like there was never, I never thought about it in terms yeah. of like, I'm going to, to be me, if you look at just it's just music yeah it's just yeah. a they're just styles like in the world of, words of miles it's like just styles yeah that's, and it's like the it's all jazz or it's all rock you know what i'm saying like yeah monk is a rock star to me it's just like um 
what should we call it? Like a, uh, just like Tom York is a rock star. They're expressing something, you know? Yeah. I think they're all expressing different versions of sound, you know? Right. I think most musicians would be able to understand what that means too. You know, like you're, but, but I think the, um, the thing about it is there's this whole level of, of that kind of studying and I don't know if you saw Whiplash um, or I saw that. Yeah. Yeah. And so like there was a point in that movie, I, I didn't like hide under, hide under my chair, but I remember there was this point where like he tells this girl that he can't see her as much because he wants to get really good at playing jazz. Uh, yeah. I remember kind of feeling in, in my most invested point at music school that's probably what I, I probably, I remember saying that to somebody like, I can't hang with you as much cause I need to like spend more time practicing, you know? And, um, just this whole idea that it's like this weird universe where there's advancement and it's competitive. Like I just, yeah, man, that's not really how I like looking at music. And I think, no, uh, yeah, we all, and we, I think we all hit that wall. Yeah. Um, it's not supposed to be so miserable and unhappy and fraught, you know, and like that, the character in which whiplash is so fraught and so tortured. And so, you know, like he's got, he's hypnotized into this, this like music equals suffering mentality. Um, Exactly. uh, The, 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 the pianist Bruce flowers, who was a close friend of mine at Berkeley and recently, you know, he, he really went up the ranks in the jazz scene when, when we both got to New York and went really far, you know, and then at a certain point he dropped out and did like coding for a while. Um, and then he's reemerged back into music, but like trying to create it in his, on his own terms and his own, through his own filter, through his own, you know, just take, grab it by the balls, by with your own hands instead of like be reliant on this or that tour or anybody's opinion and uh we've talked about that jazz training period or whatever and he's like dude it was like war <laughs> it was like a war you yeah. know and, and the, when when he said that i was like oh yeah that's right it was like a war and then it made me really miserable for a split second like this is so horrible it's not that's not how you do this you know like uh it's it's just it's just music. You know, there's a jazz training period. There's a classical training period. It's like Eddie Van Halen studied classical or messed with classical, you know, like classical is a discipline that can feed the other stuff that you're doing in music, you know, studying jazz with all its twists and turns harmonically. That's a discipline that you can bring back into your music. Yeah. But um, that's why it really, I can really identify with, like, say, for example, where Jocko was going on his records. You know, um, what are his solo records? There's the first one, the second one's Word of Mouth. Is that the second one? Yeah, there's Word of Mouth. Um, then there is the double live thing, which got whittled yeah. down to a single album in the States. Like, the, the double one was called Twins, and then the live one here was called Invitation. And then there's Holiday for Pans, which never really came out legitimately, I don't think. And so then- word, word of mouth. Let's focus on that one. When I listen to that and, you know, Jocko basically 
I mean, he came out of the R&B in the clubs as well, for sure. Like R&B training ground. But, like, he was a jazz giant, right? A modern jazz giant in the 70s. He was, like, the on the vanguard of pushing jazz fusion and modern jazz, electric jazz forward, right? And these records he was making, especially, like, you can hear it evident on that record, is just music. You know, it's just got something for everybody, and he's pulling from every side of it and it's it would just make me escape this reality and go to his reality you know but Led Zeppelin did that for me too you know um or Claire Fisher does that for me like they they rise above the style that they're supposedly connected to they transcend it you know yeah when you, make yeah it makes sense um I was going to ask, like, so when you hit that burnout, though, yeah, <laughs> that temporary thing, like, what, what was your way of getting back into it? Like, how did you, did you find, like, what was your reentry point? Because I, I had a similar, I've had moments like that. Uh, I had a moment like that in music school, but like, for I was, I'm curious, like, what, what did you do to reenter it? Like, what got you back in? What got you like back and back and engaged? Got it. Um. Well. uh so got to New York in 94, started playing seven nights a week in the clubs. Some of the things were hip, like the torsos and other things, toured with that singer, Patty Rothberg, that was kind of rock singer, songwriter. Just had this whole wave of like massive amount of experiences with playing with thousands of people between 94 and 99. Wow. And uh, I remember being on a gig with uh jesse murphy the bass player yeah and uh and he said to me <laughs> he said uh man this whole plan for other people business sucks <laughs> you know and it was so simple the way he said it and i was like oh i kind of know what you're saying you know like i was feeling a frustration because i just you know made so much music with so many people on all these different levels in the studio and in rehearsals and on gigs and stages in front of hundreds of thousands of people in front of five people, you know? Right. And it's just like, where is this going? You know? Yeah. Drums were my instrument, but now I'm starting to hate my instrument because the instrument is linked to some whack motherfuckers as well as some brilliant motherfuckers, you know? And it's, it's not, it, it's paid my bills, but it's not, um, it wasn't exactly why I got into this, that which I think everybody has that moment. You know, this isn't exactly why I got into this. So at some point on after one of the tours, I had bought a little four four track recorder, cassette recorder, and another point I was once again talking to Wolf, and Wolf said something like, "I don't want any competition, but you should get an MPC two thousand." <laughs> it's so funny how this always would come up. I don't want any competition. So I had an MPC 2000 that I'd bought, you know, and I bought a drum cat from him and uh, I had a Wurlitzer mm -hmm. and then somebody gave me a guitar. So I got the guitar fixed up. I learned to work the four track. I became, started becoming kind of a master of the MPC 2000, but they became creative devices. They became like painterly uh, machines rather than like machines where I would get the skills to get the gig to go on that tour because I got my electronics set up going on. You know what I'm saying? Like, sure. 
it's like I got it because, oh, if I got a drum cat and MPC, then I can give this tour over that other guy because I got my, you know, <laughs> my electronic shit happening. But that didn't happen much. Instead, I became like a little mini Dilla, you know. Of course, I wasn't really aware of Dilla at that point, but just, you know, really using the MPC to sample things in a crazy way and weird sounds and this and that, you sampling the, the whirly and fucking around with the keyboards, fucking around with the guitar. And and there was about, I guess, I guess you could say about a year and a half of me exploring. And a lot of it just sounds like, you know, performance art or something. Just sounds really abstract noise, noise music. But I started getting good at making beats. But I also knew some hip hop producers. And the more I would hang out with them, I realized that my beats were, they were interesting, but they didn't hit the way those guys' beats were hitting. Like those guys always had their uh, ear to the streets. And so I said, well, I need to write some songs because if I write some songs, these hip hop producers can't fuck with that. They can't <laughs> write songs. So to, to finish the circle, I was getting really sick of running all over the place playing drums with people. And so I had these little creative outlets that were developing on the side. And by 2000, 2001, it got to where I had, a, I'd mastered the four track and kind of mastered the NPC and was writing a bunch of tunes. And some of them, you know, a lot of them sucked, but I was doing it. I was playing the instruments and singing and writing really bad lyrics and some subpar weird melodies, but I was doing it you know and so that was the thing that rescued me drumming wise because i was still going out there and being joe sideband but i would bring kind of a fresher energy to a rehearsal or to a gig because i number one understood where the artist was coming from a little more because yeah. i was in the act of creating myself instead of just learning their tunes and then number two i just felt better about myself i felt more painterly and more creative more like i had something up my sleeve and i think it linked me back to the initial thing which, which was i was a visual artist before i was a musician and so the music thing had become such a craftsman thing for me that i lost all all sight of the art thing for a minute yeah. you know so i've you know i've even heard steve jordan say it's like write music even if it's bad just write music if you're a drummer sit down and write those bad songs you know and so and i feel exactly that same way just write the, that whack-ass song and sing really bad and sing those bad lyrics and just get that off your chest you know and eventually the songs start to be pretty good and the vocals aren't so bad and the lyrics are maybe a little deeper and you just have a different swagger about yourself and so that that was that was the thing, the creating and writing, and which were also the beginnings of me producing because I was so into these little boxes and messing with the sounds and effects and filtering things and stuff, you know. Did you feel like, uh, like, what was the first, what was the first, like, production-oriented gig like for you? I mean, like, were you, because, you know I, know, I know at this point you have a label imprint that's part right. of it. Yeah. You've yeah. made a couple, you've got like two solo records and then you've got like other records that like you've done. 
as, as, as the producer role. And I know you work with Derek on the Nevergelt, the Jules record. Um, yeah, we kind of broke up the production between us for that, you know. Yeah. Well, um, like, did you feel, did you ever feel sort of trapped by being a drummer also like professionally? Like, this, am I gonna am I gonna have to like am I gonna have to like carry symbols through airports for the rest of my life or were you did sort of getting into production did that free you up from that kind of am I doing well, absolutely but the the production writing and production was a side I don't want to say hot side hustle because I wasn't hustling it was just a side thing that I had yeah. going and it was a real slow ascent so because I was still on a professional tip going out and playing drums with everybody and working with other producers and observing them, you know, and, um, and some of them were, you know, amazing situations, you know, working with Lucy Pearl with Raphael Sadiq and Ali Shaheed, you know, there were a bunch of days where I spent with Ali Shaheed and just watch his process, you know? Um, and what was that like? What was that like to watch that dude? I, I was just listening to them, man, like tribe called quest. And, uh, and yeah. Um, well, he's very down to earth, very humble, and he just would put in long work days, just like any of us would, working on music, just like any of us would. But I mean, the hip hop way is, you know, you're going, his his record collection is way deeper and way more extensive and way more abstract than anything we're thinking about. Mm -hmm. Because they're, they're searching for different things. And so he, he put on some random jazz record that I'd never heard and then his ear would take him to sample things within little snippets or parts of the these random moments in songs which he could hear you know he could see ahead and sample those things and make the craziest beat out of it you know hmm. and he worked really hard to find those creative things to piece this crazy ass music together and i mean the stuff he would be working on on his own was way more uh, experimental than stuff you get to hear, you know, which was comforting for me because um, that means that these guys go through that fleshing out period before you, you know, they go through what we go through, you know, process of elimination, um, but total freedom in the creation. So, um yeah, it was great. It was great to watch him do that and great to see how he would quantize where the kick is or where the hi-hat is or things like that. And I could really see where 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 tribes, you know, where Ali's piece of the tribe sound came came from, you know. What was he working with? Like what was his what were his like tools of choice? Was he was it mostly turntables and like an NPC or was he into anything like ASR ten? Well, twenty this is twenty years ago. Right, right. So, uh, um, he had an MPC, but I think he had an MPC 3000, I think. Okay. And there's a turntable there for sure. And there's a humongous controller and there was Pro Tools, I believe. Okay. And there was DATs and samplers and just everything you would need to get it done. It wasn't crazy, you know? Um, yeah. And, you know, so working with him, working with Chromio, working with, uh, all there was just these working with Amel LaRue like there's all these gigs that I ended up on where I would observe people in the studio you know and uh and then going and playing on sessions too it's like and occasionally you're in there with somebody who's visionary and you're seeing somebody run a, a hi-hat mic through another room and 
distort it and have it hitting a uh, echoplex subdividing triplets. You know what I'm saying? Like in another room, miking the corner to get the ambient. It's like <laughs> yeah. it's like this kind of stuff. So I'm saying that to say my apprenticeship went on for a while, and uh, I probably I would produce like a song here or there or a few songs for people here or there, like in the early aughts, you know. Sure, but sure. I still would kind of work with other people and defer to other people. And by the time I had Pro Tools and then moved to Midtown Manhattan, I started trying to actually have a room and produce people. And uh, but it still wasn't full time or wasn't even half time. You know what I'm saying? And I was still touring with people, still at the mercy of whoever I'd be out on the road with. And um, after Derek and I did the Robin McKell gig, that that gig ended so badly. Uh, it was one of those things where you just it's just run its course and you made a mistake by even being going saying yes to the next tour you know like that's one of those things about being a musician it's like you have to say no even when it doesn't make sense to say no yeah like you can't just be practical you have to go with your gut so that ended really badly and i came off of that tour derek had already left like the year earlier i came off that tour and i said no more tours it was like a prophetic moment no more fucking tours meaning no more tours with like b-level singers you know where you're not coming back with either a lot of money or your name's improved you know it's just like you're just out there in their world like trying to help them do their thing but they're not really big you know yeah and so ex at that exact moment is when i started doing a lot more you know, the, the whole production thing just started amping up and that's like six years ago. And it's, um, I'm trying to think with each year after that, it's just been exponential leaps as far as making that become the thing. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, it does. I mean, cause I had, I've had my fuck touring moment. I had, yeah. that, <laughs> I had that last year and I still kind yeah. of think about, you know, I mean, I, I mean, I've, I don't want to like repeat so stuff your rooms. on other episodes, but it's, it's definitely, I'm at a point now where it's like, it took almost a full year. Um, cause it happened early in 2019. It took almost a full year for me to like really come to a peaceful place with, with wanting to play and do gigs again, you know, like I kind of, cause I just felt like, I mean, I, 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 we can talk about this offline sometime. It's not yeah. a big deal. You may even know the story, but like, um, yeah, I just, nah, man. I mean, it, I think after a certain point, it doesn't make sense to do it. And, uh, if you have a really particularly bad experience, then, um, you know, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I, I'm at, I'm at a point where 2020 started out really good in terms of doing sideman stuff and I felt good about it, but I do see myself personally making some kind of a transition away from that kind of work. And I don't feel bad about it. Like I've yeah, yeah. a place where I've like, I'm cool with, you know, like, yeah, man, I'm 45, dude. Like I've, I've done it or I've done as much of it as I've, I've, I care to, you know? Well, so that was the age. That was the age that I was at at that point too. It was just like a, yeah. I mean, uh, I don't think there's, there's no shame in that. It's like a empowering moment but i think a lot of musicians if you're a session musician or a sideman and you you're at the mercy of the phone or whatever uh you think of yourself as not running 
the show with your own career and you're at the mercy of whatever's happening and how Meg, how hot your name might be at that moment. Right. Right. But there got to be a point where it was like, I know what's good. You know, I know what I believe. I know what I want to do. I've already got, you know, hundreds of songs sitting around. I've already, I'm already in the middle of producing five different records right now. In fact, these records would get quick, finished up a lot quicker if I stopped fucking around on the road and entering somebody else's world, you know. You know, <clears throat> I have a vision for what I want to do. It's, if I stop and think about it, it's really fucking clear for me. And I'm out on the road with people who don't have a vision, who don't know what they want. So I'm being led by people who don't know what they want. And once I got honest with myself about that, and this was not to dog them or trash them, it was just looking at the situation really point blank, you know, then it became clear what I had to do. And that, but then it's, the, you know, put the, like uh, connecting the dots so that you don't fuck yourself up financially on the way out of one thing into another thing, you know? Sure. Yeah. So it's, but musicians, I think all musicians, no matter what side of it you're on, need to take control of what they're doing. You know, uh, even if you're a sideman, if you're playing, if you're in the wrong scene and you're playing with the wrong people that are not resonant frequencies, you got to get out of that scene and find yourself in the right scene with people who resonate with you, you know? Yep. Um, and that's a lot of soul searching and a lot of, taking notes, mental notes, and a lot of research internally, I think. So that's what's happened. And, uh, you know, I've, I've produced like over 30 records in the last 10 years, you know. Um, and the imprint came about for my own production company. Um, yeah, tell me about that. How did that work? Like, um, like that would be like a good that'd be like a good way to wrap. I think I want to hear about how, like how did a uh, modern icon come to fruition? Okay. Well, Lewis from uh, Lewis, the head of rope it up, actually, that was his idea. Um, he had, let me kind of backtrack. So I got to know Lewis through um, my wife was cutting the hair of somebody who was like uh, friends with a, distributor in New York. Um, I met with a distributor in Soho and they said, send me some of your stuff because we got along. And he said, oh, I love everything you're doing. And I'll release any of it. And I said, well, I don't have a label. And he's like, oh, we should form a label. And I wasn't ready to form a label. And then I saw on his roster of people he distributed that Rope It Up was one of them once. And I had this band called Light Blue Movers, which was kind of a super group but more in recording than in live, we just existed on record. And it was Darren Johnson, this keyboard player, last keyboard player with Miles Davis. Oh, like wow. an guy. Um, yeah, really magical musician. Myself, this guy, Gabriel Gordon, who's a guitar player, singer, songwriter. Um, and then Jonathan Levy. Do you know Jonathan Levy? Israeli bassist. And I know who he is. I don't know him personally. Yeah. Yeah, so unusual combination, but a magical, magical combination of people. And we'd done some gigs, and I was starting to produce this record. And it was somewhere between prog, fusion, funky, like a future soul kind of stuff, like hiatus type, you know, that progressive hip-hop soul 
whatever. It, it was pretty, it ended up becoming a very modern kind of sounding group, but instrumental primarily. And so I said, can you introduce me to the head of Rope It Ope? Um, because I have a group that I want to see if he was interested in putting out. So that happened. Met up, met with him. He liked the group and we started to form this alliance, you know, and we signed with Rope It Ope and that rec first Light Blue Bruce record came out on Rope It Ope. But I was in Philly a lot, so I would go occasionally meet up with Lewis in Jersey right over the bridge and get a coffee with him and talk ideas with him and this and that. And he started to catch wind of all the other people I was producing and then all the people I'd played with, you know, like my whole history, he'd really looked into it. And I was saying, man, I'd love to make this kind of record with that kind of artist or this kind of thing with that. And he's like, let's do it. I'll make an imprint, you know, we'll make an imprint around you, you curate it. And, uh, and put, you know, we'll release everything you're producing that you feel suit, suits the imprint through us, you know, and I, it was not my idea at all. It was his idea and it just fell right into my lap. And, uh, we eventually worked it out and I eventually started putting out some records on there. I think I put out like eight or nine records on the imprint in the last three years. So. Wow, man. That's, <laughs> that's, that's great. That's such a great, what a great place to be with all that, man. Like, it just seems like, you know, the, the planets aligned and, everything worked how it was supposed to work with that. I mean, there's other factors, you know, you put out these records and they could just sit there in the ether, you know? So with each record, we're trying to like get everybody involved to be really intentional about the trajectory of the record, you know, Brockett Parsons record, for example, you know, Brockett's record, um, he hired a publicist, you know, on top of whatever the label was doing. And uh, we put some real intention into that, you know, and then with Derek's record, I don't we didn't hire a publicist for that, but like I developed this show under the sonic hood, you know, we're meeting with different artists and we're opening up the different stems from the record and cracking jokes about the process and looking in there and really fun show. First one just came out. So that's on YouTube. Yeah. 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 What's the um, is that under your channel or is it under, like it's under your name, Adrian Harpham. I, I watched the episode with Derek. Um, let me see. What is it? You like it? <laughs> yeah, I thought it was great. I mean, I, you know, you guys are my friends. So I like on, yeah. on you know, and, and it's on, on one level, it's like, it felt like a hang, you know, like yeah. it, the way, especially the way you guys were just talking about different things. Um, and in the way the whole thing, uh, the whole thing was described, but also like, I, I remember Derek told me about, how it was like you and Al Street were sort of like the bedrock of a lot of those tracks. So like, yeah, yeah, and we had been touring with the singer I mentioned earlier. So it's like, yeah, yeah, and I, you know, it's like the past couple times I've gone to New York, I've stayed at Derek's pad in in oh, I got it. Yeah. So like, because me and Derek were really tight. Um, we've been tight for years, but we went to we were at Berkeley together. So um, we, you know, we we used to like ditch the same classes and stuff. <laughs> mm -hmm. I think that's how we bonded, but uh, yeah, yeah. yeah you know, he, and he's, he's done one of these too. So um, no, it was, it was great, man. How many do you have? Like, I mean, is it going to be an ongoing thing or do you, did you, have you done them for like all the uh, different records you've made or is it you just not for every, not, not for everyone. No. Like, so I've done three of them with three different artists 
and it's long, you know. So like Derek's, we did four songs. So episode one is one song. So there'll be three more episodes with Derek. You know what I'm saying? Okay. And there's three episodes with Fema Efron because Fema's record came out of my imprint. Oh um, man, that's gonna be cool. The, was, yeah. Which one was his? Was the was the the uh, songs from the tree? Yeah, I've heard. So I've heard this record, man, and I yeah. I heard it not realizing that it was on your imprint because you guys had like a space together for a while right like we, a- we did uh we had this space from fall 07 to spring 08 and it was like the right during the recession and um, got caught up in all this madness at that time but we'll forever be like man if we kept that place together you know we would have blah 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 <laughs> but um it doesn't matter you know yeah we would always try to play together in different situations Obviously, the torsos thing that was an association, and then the friendship aside from music, and then that space. And then, yeah, when it came time for him, when he had that record done, um, he was in the process of mixing it. And then he gave me one of the tracks. So I went in there. And so, one of the tracks on that record, I got to kind of flip it and create drops and, you know, have it give it a little more sonic swagger. Which track is but, that? I'm going to go back. Um, oh, man. It's Arboreal, maybe. Okay. It might not, might not be Arboreal. It might be, I got to look at the, I have to see the song titles. I can text you <laughs> okay. later. But yeah, so FEMA's episode is real cool. So I'm looking forward to putting that, that stuff out too. And then there's another one, this artist, Greg Dayton, who I put out this year, singer-songwriter. But those are all pre-COVID filmed episodes. I mean, it just started in the last year and a half. And so I don't know what I'm going to do now with some of the other records. Like we might have to do like a split screen, you know, video interview with like a mixing board to my right or something. I don't know. Yeah. Um, What's the future hold then, man? Like what are we uh, besides like just trying to survive the various uh, knives that have been like metaphorical <laughs> knives that seem to get constantly thrown in everybody right now. Uh, it's definitely a minefield, right? But like, what's, yeah. what's the, what's the future hold, man? Like, what do you, what do you see? How, like, what do you, where are you, where are we going? Well, there's about, there's about um, three records that I'm in the middle of finishing, like as we speak. And then there's maybe another two, three that are just like up in the air. Mm-hmm. So all those projects have to get finished up and, figured out what to do with you know i think two of them are going out on the imprint so i have projects that are you know happening that's cool Um, but i'm besides that it's kind of open-ended right now i mean i have this studio so i can track drums for people like you know i can do remote session work and things like that but um i almost see myself at some point heading in a direction where I'm composing more and producing less, you know, still producing, but you know, I'm always in the last 10 years, it's gotten to where actually probably the last five years has gotten to where I, at any given point, I've got between five to seven different records going. And I think that's a little too much, you know, like I'll read an interview with somebody and I'll say, you know, T-Bone Burnett spent six months working on this one record until it was done then took a month off in the Caribbean, then reemerged with, you know, like one thing at a time. And it's like, if I could get to where 
it's kind of like bigger things, less of them, and then the rest of the time I'm composing. Yeah. And re like putting out more records of my stuff, but maybe not necessarily the rock singer songwriter stuff, but more instrumental things and almost like the Brian Eno records where he has all kinds of records out of all kinds of different music that he's interested in. Like I could see myself doing a lot of that and having that lead into music for film, music for TV, just in an organic way, not, not in, in me pitching it way, but like, just finds itself I, those channels is what you mean, right? Yeah, almost like forming alliances with some, you know, the next Quentin Tarantino or something like that. Just, you know, you've got your friends that are like these gifted directors and you make a bunch of music for a bunch of films, you know, and gifted TV producers make submit some music, you know. It's it's hard for me to talk about things like this that, that everybody talks about because a lot of people say that they want to do that, but Right. I know it's, but I, things happen for me when I tend to just think, well, that's what I want to do. Yeah. Why not? Fuck it. You know, um, because people will always tell you, I don't know if you experienced this growing up, but it's like, I've always had people saying, well, you can't do that. That's crazy. <laughs> oh, you won't do that. And it's like every single thing that I said I wanted to do, they all said I couldn't do, and I always did it. So <laughs> the the lesson from that is like never listen to what anybody's saying outside of you. And if you fail at something, so what? You tried, you know? Yeah, no. You got to give yourself permission to uh, to not only try, but like experience whatever the results of that attempt are going to be, you know? And I think, yeah. I think also, unfortunately, there's not, I, mean, I don't know. I mean, I think the, the, the most healthy mentality I've been able to maintain in music as a professional musician is like, don't be afraid to leave your lane, you know? Yeah. Um, Cause like, man, I got, you know, like we've talked about this before. Like I, I definitely have gotten tired of, like, I don't want, hey, man, I, I don't live on fusion Island man, anymore. I can go back, <laughs> there, but I don't, I don't yeah. live there. Like I sold that house, man. You know, if yeah. I, I wanted to get into like stuff like progressive metal or rock stuff. And, you know, like I, I explored that, you know, or like, yeah, whatever you like, you know, whatever you like, you just do it. Everybody else can get lost, you know, if they're not into it. I mean, I think there's definitely people who don't have the ability to just shift on a dime, you know, like, or they, they get, they get shit for it, you know, especially if they're known for a certain thing, but I constantly, champion and and will fight to either make music with or promote the music of people that are just trying to do cool shit in spite of whatever their uh you know their 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 audience thinks they should make you know i think that's that's like one of the most interesting parts of music i think some of the things that don't work are interesting things to to explore as to what was it like was it the timing of it or was it just this is an ill-conceived concept from inception but it's like your failure to have or something i i mean i've thought about like a, i used to have this catchphrase that running in my head a few years ago that was like musicians are accidental revolutionaries 
right? You know, like if you come up in the public school system, the public school system in the United States, I can't speak for other places, but it's kind of designed to create workers, right? Designed to create, it's des- <laughs> uh, designed by the 1% to create workers so that they get mediocre people who will come work for them. And so people who end up becoming an actor or a visual artist or a dancer or a musician or a film, you know, script writer or whatever, those people as kids, they all, they, they're not given the credit enough, but they're super thinking outside the box because you're not being programmed that way. You're being programmed to think inside the box with fear. You know, you, you get a job, you know, you go to school, you get a job that you don't like for, not quite enough money and you work 40 hours a week doing something you don't like until you're 65 then you can retire and maybe think about doing a little bit of something you like right that's the programming but we're kind of like no i want to do something else right so it's like musicians we're we're revolutionaries we didn't realize it because we were just kind of like restless little talented add kids or whatever you know going after a passion or a talent but as a grown person looking back on it, it's a revolutionary act to create this life in music. So I say that to say fearlessness is name of the game. You know, like it's, it was already totally fearless for you to go after a career in music. You know what I'm saying? So it's like, like the, don't keep with those limits. Like uh, don't let limits impose themselves on this like fearless warrior act that you did. Like keep on that course and and uh be brave and go after the things you want to do and if you fail so what like herbie hancock failed you know prince failed like stevie wonders failed like Picasso's failed like the greatest people that we look up to the most they've had failures you know they fall on their face but they're brave they don't give a shit they just keep it moving so it's like we all need to put some of that into what we're doing and uh, and just go after the things we want to do and don't even think for a microsecond about what anybody thinks about it. Dude, thank you so much for, for doing this. This was a great chat. Thanks, man. Thank you. My, my pleasure. Absolutely. That's going to do it for this week's episode. Tune in next week. Thanks so much for listening and be well. <laughs>